The following message is from the 2016 IBCD Summer Institute. Disordered Desires, Bringing Grace to Modern Sexuality. My name is Brian Borgman, and just by way of clarifying, the thing on my head is not one of those man bands that you see people wearing, nor, nor is it a halo, um, although that'd be nice. But uh, actually, on uh, April 27th, I had uh, brain surgery to remove a brain tumor, and <clears throat> I forgot to push record. Anyway... <laughs> I know, I practiced in my mind, um, but uh, God has been exceptionally kind uh, to me, and things are going uh, pretty well, and God's answered a lot of prayer, and I know some of you here have prayed for me, and so let's, uh, let's open with prayer, and then we'll, we'll get in uh, to our subject. Father, we come to you tonight and we thank you for your goodness to us. Father, we know that you're a great God, greatly to be praised. You are the God who is transcendent above heaven and earth, and yet you are the God who is near us. You're the God who cares for us. You're the God who is tender and compassionate towards us. You are the God who calls us to live by wisdom and in your fear. And we pray tonight that you would give us understanding. We pray that you would uh, use these passages, these familiar passages from Proverbs to uh, help equip us, Lord, not only to help others, but also that we ourselves would walk in the fear of the Lord. And so we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, just so for the sake of, uh, of Craig, um, this is Proverbs and Sex, and I'm Brian Borgman, all right? Okay, so a number of years ago, I was reading the, um, oh, Mike, I have, uh, my glasses are in my backpack, or Doug, uh, thank you. Um, I was reading a number of, years ago, J.I. Packer's little book that's not nearly as well known as Knowing God, it's called Knowing Man, and <clears throat> Packer says, well, those are my sunglasses, oh, I but I, you know, <laughs> pardon the interruption, I'm glad this is being caught on video now. Packer has his book called Knowing Man, and he has this great uh, Great quotation, he says, if procreation is commanded, then sexual relations are commanded, and sex is, among other things, fun. I mean, it's almost unfathomable to think that J.I. Packer would say that. There can be no doubt about it. When God told the man and the woman to multiply, he was telling them and intending them to have fun. For married couples, the joy of sex is commanded by God. And uh, I I believe that that is absolutely true, and it's probably to the church's great detriment and to the next generation's great detriment that we've not taught a biblical perspective on sex. And what else is, is tragic is that those who purport to do so often do so in crude and unbecoming ways. And, uh, and yet the Bible has a wonderful delicacy about it in dealing with these really um, wonderful subjects. So the Proverbs obviously talk quite a bit about sex, and we're going to look at that uh, tonight. But the Bible as a whole deals with the subject. And uh, consider one of the main themes that we're going to be looking at at this conference, the Song of Songs. It's a, it's a celebration of, of marital intimacy. And if we have a good theology of creation, then we understand that that sex is, in fact, a gift from our creator. But the abuse of that gift is is devastating. And so it really is one of the the most uh, wonderful gifts within marriage. If that gift is abused, 
uh, it can have uh, devastating consequences. And so we know that, that, that sexual sin is a very serious problem in the church. I saw an article not that long ago where um, millennials and what's the generation under the millennials? Um, see, Jason needs to be here to help me with those things. There's a, um, there is a much more relaxed view of premarital sex. And so although temptation and, and failure in these areas have always been present within the church, um, in previous generations, there was a fundamental sense that it's immoral and it's wrong, and yet now many who would profess to be evangelicals uh, don't see any problem with, quote, hooking up with somebody. It's almost a part of, of, the, uh, of the culture. And, um, and, and yet, if you deal with people, you realize that it is not only a serious problem, but those who fail struggle with guilt, those who fail um, and face temptation. It is an ongoing uh, issue. Of course, the sexual scandals regularly impact the church. Families are torn apart by immorality. And the great thing about Proverbs is that Proverbs does two things with uh, a perspective on, on sex, and that is, on the one hand, it extols the goodness of sex within the proper boundaries of marriage, but then it also severely warns in, in, in the strongest of terms against the destructive misuse of it. And so uh, both of these actually are a valuable tool for us, both in teaching and, and counseling in the church, especially in our over-sexualized age. And uh, there are there are three key passages that deal with sex in the Proverbs. And uh, by key, I mean they actually kind of form almost a unit, 515 to 23, 620 to 34, and then 7, 6 to 27. Now, the first text, which we'll look at, we're going to actually look at each of these, and I want to just point certain things out. The first text gives us a combination of warning, celebration, warning, okay? And then the second text, chapter 6, gives us basically just a warning, and it is the warning of the folly of immorality. Now, the, the, the thing about Proverbs is that you have wisdom and folly, but you also have wisdom and folly that are personified as lady wisdom and, in a sense, madam folly, right? You have that juxtaposition in the Proverbs. And so people that follow lady wisdom follow fidelity, and people that follow Madame Folly, of course, engage in uh, sexual infidelity. And so the third passage, though, I find to be actually the most interesting because in the third passage, the uh, chapter 7, you get a, um, a, a dramatic reenactment of folly, and we'll take a look at that. Uh, th- these are passages that we should be very, very familiar with. And uh, let me just wait one more point before we look at the text, and that is, although the Proverbs come to us as the revelation of divine wisdom, in a sense, under the overarching principle of the fear of the Lord, we need to remember that, that, that oftentimes in the Proverbs, the motives for living wisely and righteously the motives are oftentimes immensely practical. In other words, the consequences of wisdom and the consequences of folly oftentimes are uh, the the primary motivating factors. And and I say that because uh, I hardly think that, that such practical considerations of our behavior could be considered uh, moralism. You know, everything today, this is, this is for free, everything today has to be gospel-centered and gospel-driven. And, you know, sometimes the Bible warns us against things because the outcome is going to be really bad. And sometimes the consequences of bad behavior may be what rescues us when um, love for Christ is waning. 
And so I would just encourage you, biblical counselors, don't, um, don't minimize the impact of uh, wisdom literature that says consequences in your life matter. And you can ruin your life, and that matters, right? Okay, so let's take a look at chapter 5. Um, I'm actually glad my wife is not here with me because she, she always gets so embarrassed because I tell a little story when we get to chapter 5, but she's given me permission. Uh, here's, here's, this is Solomon talking to his son, which, of course, is really important for the context, right? He says, verse 15, Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be, be exhilarated always with her love. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress? And embrace the bosom of a foreigner. For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. His own iniquities will capture the wicked, and he will be held with the cords of his sin. He will die for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his folly, he will go astray. And so here is the first major section that deals with uh, sexual intimacy. Uh, Derek Kidner calls this section in his little commentary, Fidelity, the Better Path. And uh, in in verses 15 to 17, it's just a a call to sexual fidelity. And and in the Proverbs, and this is one of the things that makes expositional preaching kind of difficult, this Song of Solomon would fit into the same category, the Bible deals with delicate issues, typically with metaphorical language. And, of course, the role of the expositor is to explain the text. And so trying to explain the more delicate metaphors that are, that are describing intimate things is, is a challenge because you have to appreciate the fact that the Bible does not use the crude, coarse language of the street to describe the good gifts of God. And so trying to maintain that balance between explanation and yet uh, uh, honoring the, uh, the sensitivity in which the Bible speaks to these things. So Solomon here talks about water and fresh water. Most of the commentators think that the idea here is the idea of uh, sexual affection or desire that is satisfied. The picture of the cistern or the spring is one's wife. And so the imagery that's before us is that the refreshment of desire, which is satisfied through marital relations, should take place only between a man and his wife. And in fact, you can see the contrast in verse 16 when it says, should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the street. There's a contrast between the cistern and the spring and that which is done outside and in the streets. Now, the, the, the metaphor there may be uh, more graphic or it may just simply be uh, that which is properly belongs to you and that which is outside in the street. But the idea that Solomon is, is presenting to his son is simple, and that is you don't take sexual pleasure outside the legitimate source of satisfaction. That's the biblical principle. There is, there is an exclusivity of sexual pleasure within the bonds of marriage, and that's the only place that it should exist. And then Solomon speaks in language that, um, that, that may make some of us blush a little bit, but verse 18, he just speaks of the joy, and, and, and notice, not just the joy of sex, the joy of sexual fidelity, okay? That, that's, that's one of the things that we kind of miss. We get, we get so caught up on on the acts of intimacy that we miss the fact that the Bible emphasizes not just the joy of sex as a gift from God, but the joy of sexual fidelity with, between one man and one woman in the bonds of marriage. And so Solomon says in verse 18, he says, let your fountain be blessed. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. This is a father praying for a son. And I've got to tell you, it... 
it really doesn't cross my mind to pray for my sons this way very often. I pray that God would give them a godly wife, but let your fountain be blessed. Solomon is saying, I pray that you have a blessed life of intimacy, that you rejoice in the wife of your youth, um, to be glad, to be satisfied, to, to be pleased. And, and so this is the father's prayer for a son that he would have a strong, vibrant, monogamous marriage. Then he uses more imagery like a, a loving hind, graceful doe. Um, some of the commentators, Bruce Waltke, for instance, says that the picture here, the, the, the doe in ancient Near Eastern literature often was a metaphor for erotica. And the, the, the picture is this, um, uh, is supposed to be, uh, again, in its own delicate way, an arousing picture. Now, we don't usually think, I mean, I love deer hunting, don't get me wrong, but I don't think of does as, as, as somehow a metaphor for uh, that which is erotic. But the idea is the big black eyes, the, the graceful limbs, even silky black hair. And then Solomon says, and let her breast satisfy you at all times. And so the idea is, is that, uh, well, of course, the, the, the woman's breasts are for the nourishment of a baby, but the idea here is that they're also that which brings joy and satisfaction to the husband. And in fact, Solomon says at all times. In other words, no, no, God doesn't place any limits on the joys that can exist within the bonds of marriage. And then he says, be exhilarated with her love. Now, what's, what's great here is that the Bible, the Bible does not advocate intoxication, except it be with the intoxication of the love of your wife, which I think is pretty great. I mean, that's a great image, right? And um, the, uh, the picture is, is you're to be intoxicated with her love. Bruce Walke actually argues that, that, that with her love is just too bland, too generic, because the idea is the word uh, of caresses. So he actually suggests be exhilarated with her lovemaking. And the picture is, is this unashamed, fully engaged, joyful intimacy that exists between a man and a woman. And, and what I want to say is that in these two verses, what we have is a picture of unmitigated joy between a husband and a wife. And maybe if the church has, had been more serious over the years in emphasizing the delight of the gift and then the boundaries of the gift, we wouldn't have had some of the perspectives that we've had on sexuality. Now, to be sure, he moves immediately then to the folly of infidelity, and I remember years ago, uh, I was pouring concrete in my backyard, and my wife, Ariel, I just, uh, she is fantastic. And she has, she has taken care of me the last two months, and um, uh, I, I'll stop there because I'll start crying. But um, I poured some concrete in the backyard, and so I wrote in one of the, 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 the sections, I wrote Brian and Ariel, and then the date, and then I put... Proverbs 18 and 19. And she came out to look at the concrete and she looks at the, the, the thing that I wrote and she's like, are those the verses I think they are? <laughs> and I said, yeah, the, I, I'm pretty sure they're the verses you're thinking of. And she's like, you can't put that in concrete. <laughs> And I said, well, I did. And she goes, when we move, we're going to have to take that with us. I said, forget about it. Whoever comes along next, I said, I'm completely unashamed of my, my love for you. And so they can go and look up the text themselves. And maybe if they're unbelievers, they'll keep reading and get saved. So anyway, so starting verse 20, then Solomon moves then back to uh, warning. So you see, warning, celebration, warning. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated, intoxicated with an adulteress? And so this warning section is going to be amplified. 
And what I find interesting is that the, the actual uh, uh, space devoted to the celebration is relatively small compared to the sections of warning, all right? And so the warning again, the father talking to the son, warning him of the folly of not being a sexually faithful man. The son, in other words, is to wait for God's best. He is to wait for the verses 18 and 19 woman. He is not to be going out and being intoxicated by the adulteress, the forbidden woman. In fact, Solomon uses uh, two words. He calls her an adulteress and then uh, embrace the bosom of a foreigner. And, of course, to embrace the bosom is a euphemism for sexual intimacy. But it says foreigner. ESV probably does a better job at that point. But the idea is a covenant outsider. Uh, And and so the... um, the picture is is that that kind of intoxication, son, is going to be intoxicating for all the wrong reasons. There is an intoxication that comes with love that is good and is the gift of God, but there's also an intoxication that comes from that which is illicit. In fact, Bruce Waltke says, involvement with an unchaste wife is absurd, when you just think about the, the absurdity, you think about the consequences, you think about what's actually going on, and, uh, and yet there is something that is exhilarating about it. Stolen water is sweet. Bread uh, eaten in secret is pleasant. And I always remember uh, in Augustine's Confessions when he talks about him and his uh, compatriots going into the man's orchard and stealing his pears. And it was exciting actually knowing that he could come out at any minute and catch them. And yet when they started to eat the pears, they tasted terrible. There was something that was intoxicating about doing that which was wrong. And yet when the reality came around of what you were doing, it was no longer all that great. The other reason is not only because that kind of illicit love could be intoxicating. But verse 21, God actually sees and God knows. What does the adulterer or the fornicator always think? He always thinks that what he's doing, he's doing under the cover of darkness and will get away with. And the reality is, is whether a person is caught or not in this life, there is a God who sees and there's a God who knows, the God with whom we have to do the God who judges the thoughts and intents of the heart. And so Solomon is reminding uh, his son, the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord. He watches all of his paths. I remember I was about 18, 19 years old. My dad had just had back surgery, and we were going just for a walk around the neighborhood for him to get some exercise. And um, he asked me, you know, how I was, uh, how I was conducting myself. And I said, I, I think I'm, I'm doing pretty good. And he said, you know, he says, I hope that you're telling me the truth. He says, but even if you're not, God knows the truth. God knows the truth. God knows what's going on. And that just always, that just always rung in my head is the, the God before whom we live and move and have our being actually knows. There's nothing done under the cover of darkness. And Solomon reminds his son of that. But the next reason why you have to avoid this is because, verse 22, sexual sin is enslaving. And so uh, he says, his own iniquities will capture the wicked and he will be held with the cords of his sin. And so what seems like a one-time look or a one-time event can very easily become a bondage. And, you know, you, you actually hear these, these, these horrible stories, but people that end up in bondage and, and ultimately, verse 23, destroying their lives, those things don't start on a magnitude of, you know, from 1 to 10 as a 10. Those things start out small. Those things start out, you know, with, you know, the brush of a hand or a, a prolonged glance or, you know, any number of things that may seem uh, innocent and easily justified in the moment. 
But Solomon makes it clear, listen, your iniquities can, can capture you. You can be held by the cords of your own sin. And then verse 23, he'll die for lack of instruction in the greatness of his folly. He'll go astray. In other words, sexual sin is, is ultimately destructive. It is walking death. It has this intoxicating power to it. You know, you don't have to be a pastor very long to figure out as you're, as you're dealing with people that, that, that sin makes people stupid, but sexual sin makes people really stupid. You, you see men who um, have been active in the church, led in prayer, helped serve at the Lord's table, um, you know, taught Bible studies. You, you see, um, and I'm thinking specifically of men here. I know that women fall into the same, same temptations. And then all of a sudden, here's a man who's been a model of, um, of a Christian husband and a Christian father willing to walk away from his profession of faith, walk away from his family, destroy his kids for what? For sex. It is insanity. It is absolute insanity. And in our clear moments, we would say that's never, ever worth it. But under the intoxicating cloud of that which is forbidden, watch out. Sin is powerful. And there is a powerful appeal. And I believe that there is a peculiarly powerful appeal to sexual sin. Now we're going to look more briefly at the, at the next two and then draw some, some important conclusions. Um, chapter 6, verse 20 20 to 24 is sort of the typical uh, Proverbs, uh, father, son, uh, listen to what I'm going to tell you and take it to heart. He says, my son, observe the commandment of your father. Do not forsake literally the Torah of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. What, what What is the imagery here? Bind them to your heart. Tie them around your neck. You... It's okay to me if you talk. <laughs> okay, something that, that is easily recalled, right? Something that, you've, something that you've put on, something that has become yours, something that is close to you. And then notice, when you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over. When you awake, they will talk to you. For the commandment is a light, is a lamp, and the teaching is light. Reproofs for discipline are the way of life. We don't have time to, to, to dig into that, but just think about that for a second. Reproofs for discipline are the way to life. In the Proverbs, who is it that gives heed to, uh, to reproof? Well, it's the wise person. Who is it that actually rejects reproof? Well, it's the fool, right? Now, verse 24. So here's this body of teaching, commandment, reproof. It's a way of life. And what is its primary purpose? Verse 24. To keep you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. And one of the things that struck me about this passage is the way in which Solomon put so much weight on wanting to warn his son of the absolute folly of sexual infidelity. In other words, one of the primary things that I'm supposed to instill in your life are truths and principles that so govern you that they keep you from this way. You know, in our own day, we've become so relaxed in these areas that as parents, we often don't invest the kind of time and energy that we need to in the lives of our kids as if they're going to pick up biblical ethics by osmosis. Solomon says, I, I'm doing my best to instill these things in you. Then the consequences of sexual immorality, 25, don't desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her, let her capture you with her eyelids. 
It's different imagery, isn't it? For on account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread, and an adulteress hunts for the precious life. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. Men do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is hungry. But when he is found, he must repay sevenfold. He must give of all the substance of his house. The one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He would destroy himself who does it. Wounds and disgrace he will find, and his reproach will not be blotted out. For jealousy enrages a man, and he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will not accept any ransom, nor will he be satisfied, though you give him many gifts. Let me just cover these fairly quickly. Verse 25, don't desire, and therefore don't get captured. One of the things that that, that Solomon is driving at is, avoid the illicit lust and you will avoid getting ensnared. It's actually that simple. Um, There is a challenge, of course, the the smooth tongue, the beauty, capturing with the eyelids. You know, you actually think of maybe like batting the eyes in a flirtatious way. Solomon is acknowledging, listen, the, the, the dangerous woman, okay, the foreign woman, the, the adulteress, she is going to be appealing if you give her the attention she desires. If, if you decide to actually look and take a second look and then try to create some sort of, of interaction, don't be surprised when you get caught in the snare. If you avoid it, let me just say to, to the men here, uh, it, it is better to be thought of as rude by the opposite sex than to be caught by what begins as innocent acts of kindness taken as flirtation. Okay. The cost of immorality, verse 26. Um, I, I think I think the NAS probably does not do the best job here. For on account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread. I think that what's in view here is the consequences. Um, New English translation, for on account of a prostitute, one is brought down to a loaf of bread, kind of captures the same idea as the NAS. I think the ESV probably, which most of you probably use, the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread. And I think what Solomon's doing here is he is contrasting the costs. The illicit uh, sexual encounter may only cost you a loaf of bread, but in the end, it will end up costing you far more. It it may be relatively easy to have uh, that, uh, that encounter, but in the end, it's going to cost you a lot more than a loaf of bread. The consequences we see of, of another man's wife, verse 26, the wife of another man preys on your precious life, New English translation. An adulteress goes after a precious life. And so the picture is, is that, um, and of course, you know, Solomon's writing from a male perspective and it's, it's mutual, but the, the consequences of what's happening... Believe it or not, there are actually unscrupulous men and women in the world who will willingly and gladly ruin somebody's life over sex. Unscrupulous people who don't care about anybody or anything. And they're sometime, they are sometimes in churches. And so the rest of the passage, um, by the way, she's described earlier in Proverbs 2 as the one who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. Um, now, Solomon has a, has a perspective on those that get ensnared in adultery. Uh, Ecclesiastes 7.26, I discovered more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are chains 
One who is pleasing to God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. I I, I think the idea is is that the, the one who lives his life in God's wisdom and in the fear of the Lord and seeks to avoid her is is pleasing to God and will escape from her. But the one who's actually already entertaining these things in his heart, God may well give that person over to that sin. Sometimes God punishes sin with more sin. The next principle, 27 to 29, you can't play with fire without getting burned, which is, of course, a painful lesson. Verses 30 to 33, you will not escape the scorn or disgrace. Uh, We had a a situation years ago with really just a couple that has grown in Christ and just so, so happy to see them doing well. But years ago, there had been infidelity. And we live in a relatively small community. And the husband kept running into the man that his wife had committed adultery with. And it was, it was so shameful to him, but so angering. And Solomon presents a picture that, that you know, if somebody goes and in, 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 in the midst of being hungry, goes and steals bread, you know, they're going to have to pay that back. They're going to have to make restitution. But people understand that. But if you steal somebody's wife... That's not anything that anybody is going to abide with and say, well, you know what, uh, you know, bread is for the stomach. You know, no one's going to say that. They will not spare in the day of vengeance. And um, verses 34 and 35, notice, for jealousy enrages a man. He will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will not accept any ransom, nor will he be satisfied, though you give him many gifts. The reality is is that sexual infidelity is involving someone else and oftentimes someone else's spouse. And the idea is you're not going to escape the rage. You have have entered into a violation of the most intimate personal aspect of, of, of somebody's relationship. And that violation is a violent one. And there is no way to escape the fact that other people are involved. And, of course, we know the devastating results um, because of examples that we see in our own ministries and churches and sometimes lives. Now, my favorite passage is actually chapter 7 because Solomon gives us this incredible dramatic reenactment. I love this passage Again, starts off with the parental exhortation, verses 1 to 5. And notice the parallel from chapter 6. My son, keep my words. Treasure my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. In other words, internalize them. Make these things yours. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call understanding your intimate friend, why that they may keep you from an adulteress, from the foreigner who flatters with her words. Again, the parental instruction, the uh, instilling of, of wisdom is designed to maintain the purity of his son. Then Solomon says, this is terrific. He says, for at the window of my house, I looked out through my lattice and saw among the naive and discerned among the youths a young man lacking sense. Now, it's somewhat sort of a hypothetical, you know. It's like Solomon's painting this dramatic picture. I'm standing at my window. I look outside. You'll never believe what I saw. A young man lacking sense. (laughs) Of course, I think this is supposed to be somewhat comical, as if, you know, the weird thing would have been, I saw a young man having wisdom. The reenactment, though, is this dramatic reenactment of the father telling, unfortunately, an all-too-common story through this vivid scene. And so notice the words that are used to describe this young man. Notice he is 
naive, he's young, he's lacking sense. Now, in, in wisdom literature, the naive is the, he's the unproven, he's the untested. The naive actually has the, uh, he, he's in a sense at wisdom crossroads. He can either um, make good choices and begin down the path of wisdom, or he could make bad choices, in which case he graduates from naive to the fool. And then, of course, the fool in wisdom literature, if he is unrepentant, ends up graduating to the school of the scoffer. There's sort of an escalation there, naive fool scoffer. And so here, Kidner says he's young, he's inexperienced, he's feather-brained. Okay? True enough. We, and, of course, we know young men have the tendency to be feather-brained. But I will tell you, that sexual temptation can turn all of us into feather brains, no matter how old or how young we are. One of the one of the, the, the most tragic things is to see people that have been married for twenty five years or more, and then and then you see one of them go off the rails for the sake of an illicit relationship, and they are just as feather brained is the 19-year-old who goes off to college. And so the picture here is, here's this naive person, young man, he's lacking sense, and then, verse 8, passing through the street near her corner, the notorious her, he takes the way to her house. In the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, and in the darkness, and behold, a woman comes to meet him, dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. And so here we're introduced to not only the, um, the, uh, the inexperience of the young so that he's going the wrong way. Okay? He's, there's a gravitational pull in his heart there's, there's an area where he knows he's supposed to avoid, but he goes there. It's dark, it's dangerous, it's exciting, and he goes there. But the problem is, is that the person that he thinks is, might bring him the thrill of his life is, is a hunter. And her design is to make him her prey. And so verses 10 to 12, we see the, the, the huntress to be... Uh, gender correct. Behold, the woman comes to meet him. So she's going out. She's taking the initiative. She's showing interest in him. She's going out to meet him. She's not playing hard to get. She's dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. Now you might think, well, if she's dressed like a harlot, why wouldn't she just run? Well, because of the lust of the eyes. In principle, modesty should be absolutely beautiful and, the, and attractive to us because it's a quality of the heart. But the fact is, is that the lust of the flesh is appealed to through the lust of the eyes. And so here's this woman. She takes the initiative. She shows interest. She's showing some skin, as it were, Cunning of heart, notice she's boisterous, rebellious. Her feet do not remain at home. She's now in the streets, now in the squares, and lurks by every corner. She's on the hunt, right? Notice the tactics here. This is absolutely terrible. She seizes him and kisses him and says with a brazen face, she says to him, I was due to offer peace offerings. Today I've paid my vows. Therefore, I've come out to meet you to seek your presence earnestly, and I found you. So first of all, she's religious. She's, she, she's a good Christian woman, you know. She is the Sunday school superintendent. No offense to Sunday school superintendents. But I, I, I'm actually, I, I can't believe the way providence has just brought us together. I was just out making my, my peace offerings, and, and, and wow, I, I met you, and I'm so happy to see you. Notice it's brazen, the, the way that she says it. And then verse 16, it just, 
I've spread my couch with coverings, colored linens of Egypt. I've sprinkled my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us drink our fill of love until the morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses, for my husband is not home, and he's gone on a long journey. Now, let me just, let me just stop there. Um, if your heart is looking for that which is illicit, this is irresistible. If, you're, if, if, if you have lust, illicit lust in your heart, this, whether male or female, this kind of aggressiveness, this kind of assertiveness, this kind of brazenness ends up being irresistible, ends up being, from a very sinful perspective, almost too good to be true. She offers, she tells him about safety. My husband's not home. He's taking a bag of money with him and full moon he'll come back. He's out doing business somewhere. He's on a business trip. And with many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. And so those are the tactics. And then she goes in for the kill. Verse 22. Suddenly he follows her. Now, you know, suddenly, I, I, I think that the picture is she has come on to him. She has um, appealed to him. He is, he's that inexperienced, naive. He's in that, 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 that position of, of, should I do this? Should I not? And then in a second, he decides, this is what I want. And in the, in, in, in the second, think about your life. How many times do you wish you could go back and just change one second? If only I hadn't decided to do that on what seemed like a whim. Now, make no mistake about it. This is percolating in his heart. But the minute that he decides to follow her, it seems like an immediate decision. And as an ox goes to the slaughter, as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool, until an arrow pierces through his liver, as a bird hastens to the snare, so he does not know it will cost him his life. That's the kill. Now, what Solomon does is he then draws out application. And what he wants to do is he wants his son to understand. Verse 24, therefore, my son, listen to me and pay attention to the words of my mouth. You know, as, as parents, you, um, you want so badly for your children to listen to you. You want them so badly to recognize um, your wisdom and experience that just comes with life and living for God. But oftentimes the foolishness of a young heart is they don't know as much as I do. And you can see Solomon just desperately appealing to his son, listen to me, I know what I'm talking about. And, of course, their situation is always different. They're, only, they're the first ones to actually ever feel like this. And they're the first ones to ever experience this. Solomon says, Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many are the victims she has cast down. Numerous are all are slain. Her house is the way to Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. And so Solomon says, Listen and pay attention really terrific commentator on the Proverbs, Kathleen Farmer, says the young man's lack of wisdom leads him to believe that he can indulge in an illicit liaison without suffering any consequences. Only the, quote, simple and those who have ignored the teachings of wisdom are tempted to think that they can escape the repercussions of their actions. This is one of the lines of demarcation between the wise and the fool. The, the wise person realizes that actions do have consequences, and if I take those actions, I'm not going to be exempt from those consequences. The fool says, well, of course there's consequences, but those consequences are for other people. Solomon then exhorts, basically, verse 25, 
don't let your heart turn aside. Don't stray into her paths. In other words, you need to guard yourself. You need to guard your heart and your mind. Because where the mind is allowed to roam, the feet will soon begin looking for a way to get there. Make no mistake about that. By the way, this is why, this is why one of the many reasons why pornography is so absolutely dangerous is because it takes your mind to a place that your feet will start to desire to go. Kidner says, you are in danger as soon as your thoughts wander in this fatal direction. And then verses 26, 27, consider the carnage and the destruction. Think about the outcome. Think about what's going to happen. So Farmer again says, believing that one can make choices which have no consequences leads to death. It's the epitome of folly. All right. So these three passages on Proverbs. Uh, Let me just make a couple concluding uh, observations and then just a couple applications. First of all, these passages speak either explicitly or implicitly about the goodness of the gift of sexuality. And the joy of sexual fidelity is not only the joy that comes from a loving spouse, but it is also the joy of having a good conscience. Do, Do not underestimate the joy of having a good conscience. But these passages also emphasize the tragic results of making foolish choices in life, the results of infidelity. These passages present to us the power of temptation. Remember John Owen's um, immortal quote, be killing sin or it will be killing you. These things are always at work in us. You know, we have the world, the flesh and the devil. These things, it's not as if you get to choose to live a monastic life in this world. And so these passages present to us in powerful metaphor, powerful pictures, the results of failing in sexual temptation. And I would urge us to look at these texts as that which load up our consciences with the devastation that comes with sexual immorality. Now, what about the application? Well, I think first it would be terrible if we didn't say at least whether male or female, make sure that you apply these things first and foremost to yourself. Um, If I could just make a recommendation, Jim Neuheiser wrote a fantastic article that actually came out about 20 years ago, if I'm not mistaken, uh, The Tenderness Trap. And it is in particular for counselors. Um, we need to understand that uh, counseling can be incredibly precarious. As you're trying to enter in and help people bear burdens and deal with problems, counseling can be very, very precarious. And so I would say that for ourselves, we look at these passages and we remind ourselves of the destructive consequences of making foolish choices. When I was in seminary in, uh, in Portland in the early 90s, we had Randy Alcorn come and uh, he spoke to us. And since then, these have been republished many, many times. But Randy Alcorn had put together a personalized list of anticipated consequences of immorality and I forget how many there are. There's probably over 20. I'll just read some of them to you. So he's talking about the things that I remind myself of in the case of if I ever fell into immorality. Grieving my Lord, displeasing the one whose opinion matters most. Dragging into the mud Christ's sacred reputation. Loss of reward and commendation from God. Having one day to look Jesus in the face at the judgment seat and give an account of why I did it. Forcing God to discipline me in various ways. Following in the footsteps of men I know of whose immorality forfeited their ministry and caused me to shudder. List those names to yourself. The suffering of innocent people around me who would, be, who would get hit by my shrapnel. Untold hurt to my wife, my best friend, my loyal spouse. Loss of her respect and trust. Hurt and loss of credibility with my beloved daughters. And he goes on, shame to my family. 
Shame to my church family. Shame and hurt to fellow pastors, elders. Shame and hurt to my friends, especially those that I've led to Christ and discipled. Guilt, which is awfully hard to shake. Even though God would forgive me, the guilt would still plague me. Plaguing memories, flashbacks, disqualifying myself after I've preached to others. He goes on and he has a list of others. I have a website there for you where you can find the list of these. In other words, look at these passages. Think about the consequences. And as, as, again, as John Owen would say, load up your conscience with the potential guilt of that sin. Nobody in their right mind wants to experience the guilt and the shame of, 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 of such a violation of covenant with God and with a spouse. And so we take every precaution. Some people might think that we're too strict. Some people might think that we're... Take every precaution in order to avoid being ensnared. Because once a person gets ensnared... It may be like jumping off a building and halfway down trying to change your mind. It's not going to happen. What about to home and church? Well, first of all, if your kids are still at home, speak to your kids honestly. For those of you that have young kids, let me just speak to your kids honestly and biblically about the joys and the delights and about the dangers. Let them... Let them see genuine affection between mom and dad so that they start to get a picture of of what a healthy relationship looks like so that they're not out trying to to manufacture something in, in their teenage years. Make sure that these truths are actually taught to our kids in church. And, and by that, you have to understand, I mean by the appropriate qualified adults... Okay? You don't want your 18-year-old youth sponsor doing this. Okay? Qualified, experienced, wise, godly adults in proper settings. Okay? But one of the things that we do is we absolutely fail our kids if we don't equip them to think biblically about sexuality. And then finally, to our counselees, I think that over the years, as I, I think back, I think one of the, my, the mistakes that I've made is not speaking directly enough about some of these issues in contexts where I thought that they were the problem. You know what I'm talking about? And wanting to be delicate and not wanting... You know, and I'm not talking about being crude or crass with somebody, but I'm talking about being direct and asking direct questions and and for the sake of, of not wanting to make the person feel maybe un- embarrassed or uncomfortable, not going as far as I thought I should in asking, you know, so, are, you, you know, so and so, are, are you actually looking at pornography right now? I mean, have you looked at it on your computer? Is there anybody that you are flirting with right now? Those are the kinds of questions that are very uncomfortable to ask. But those are the kinds of questions, by the way, that elders should be asking each other and that when we are dealing with people in counseling situations, um, we, we need to be direct. Um, they need to hear the joyful exhortations of the wonderful gift of God, but they also need to be reminded of the dreadful consequences in the case of failure, and they also need to be reminded of the grace of God, which is greater than all of our sin. And so uh, these, I believe, are powerful truths. I would commend these three passages to you to dig in deeper and draw out some of the things that are motives to avoid bad decisions and what are the, uh, in a sense, the exhilarating rewards of God's goodness uh, within marriage. So, all right, well, we have 30 seconds. Any questions? Excellent. If you have any questions, Mike Kelly be glad to help you afterwards. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks for your attention. Let's pray. Father, as we sit here tonight, we would plead with you.
that you would lead us not into temptation and that you would deliver us from evil. Father, we pray that you would give us a wisdom which is from above that guards our hearts, our minds, and our steps. Father, we pray that for the glory of your own name, for your reputation, for your son's reputation, that you would keep us. Lord, keep us from these sins. And Father, for those of us who are married, we pray that we would uh, embrace the gift that you've given and that we would use it for your glory. And Father, we pray that, um, that you would keep all of us to the end. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2016 IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org.